welcome to the Courtney Turner Radio Hour. It is airing on February 5th of 2024. I can't believe this. We're already in February of 2024. And we are here on WWCR Worldwide Radio. And it is an honor to spend this hour with you. I wanted to let you know that you can find all of my work. I am going to put a video of this up as well on my website, and that is at CourtneyTurner.com, and I spell my name a little bit differently. It's like Courtenay, so C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y-T-U-R-N-E-R.com, and you can find all my podcasts, my articles, and we have updated with ways that you can support the broadcast and the podcast and all of my research, and so we have several uh, different uh, sponsors. You can also just send a Gives and Go. You can do a uh, Venmo uh, if you want to just do direct donations. I also do have a P.O. Box, and that is P.O. Box 680093, Franklin, Tennessee, 37063. Uh, so you can just send me, you can send me support, words of support also. I really appreciate that. Any feedback, uh, things you'd like to see, things you'd like to hear. Um, yeah, so all of that is really greatly appreciated. I have heard from some of you, and I really do appreciate the messages that have come in. And uh, I have uh, with me my element. This is from the chocolate medley. It is I, I drink it hot because it's winter, and I like warm things in the winter. So anyway, I thought for today we would do something a little bit different. Uh, so for those of you who do not know, I come from a film background. I was an actress and producer. I lived, I did theater at first uh, in New York City. I had a theater company and I did a lot of theater production, um, mostly. It was kind of a funny story, but <laughs> the way I got into producing was because uh, those of you who aren't familiar with that world, if you're in the independent scene, not the Hollywood scene, the independent scene, it's very hard to get funding for anything. And if you're not funded, it's uh, pretty hard just to produce anything. So I, I would get cast in things, whether it be indie film or even theater. And things would get stopped pretty quickly. And I thought of acting as kind of like playing. You know, this was a adult way to make a living doing playthings. <laughs> um, so I would get very frustrated that my playtime was being interrupted, if you will. And it was because we would fall short in funding. And so I, I would say to the producers, what needs to happen so I can play, so I can do my role? And uh, they they would tell me, like, they're there, little girl, you know, if you can get me this set, this, uh, you know, the payment for the actors and for the crew, and you can get me this location and X, Y, and Z. If you can get all these things, I said, oh, okay, so I get these things and then I can play. <laughs> and they, they kind of, you know, looked at me like, uh-huh, yeah, okay. So I would do that. And that's actually really how I got started with uh, theater production initially. But I just kind of saw it as, okay, we have to solve these problems and uh, let's get whether it's the money or the costumes or, and I would broker deals essentially find, you know, through various relationships and, you know, all of that so that I could continue to play. Um, so it's hard for me. I have not watched movies in a really long time until pretty recently. Uh, we decided to go see some of the uh, propaganda films, if you will, <laughs> uh, or that's what they look like. You know, I, some might call it predictive pr programming. I, I think the militaristic term is actually operational preparation of the environment. And uh, I think a lot of film films and not just film, but art in general is used for this purpose. It is done for the purposes of culture creation, for socially engineering the masses. And uh, 
I have another site also that you can check out. It's called rebelsforcause.com. And uh, that that's rebels, plural, four spelled out, F-O-R, cause, C-A-U-S-E.com. And that's an event that I put on. Uh, it was last year, June 3rd and 4th. And cause stands for, we called it the cause fest. And cause stands for creative artists uniting for the sovereignty of everyone. The purpose of this is because my experience, both through my personal experience, as well as through the research I've done, has really indicated to me that people who are successful in the mainstream entertainment mediums, whether that be Hollywood or the music industry, I used to make the joke that they bargain with the devil. I'm now not so sure that that was really a joke. Uh, it does seem like it's a pretty dark industry. And if you are not aligned with their agenda, their narratives, then you have a really hard ch chance of, you know, having any real success. They silence you, they cancel you. And so I really wanted to give a platform to independent artists. That is not to say that I agree with every uh, voice or perspective uh, that, you know, even of the people who we had, we had 53 acts between speakers and musicians and comedians, filmmakers. We had several panel discussions uh, I'm an aerial acrobatic performer, so I did two routines for this event that we did. But even if I don't agree with all of them, I, you know, see them as genuine, authentic, independent voices, and I wanted to give them a platform and a voice, pun intended. So that's really important to me because I think one of the reasons they are silenced and they is because the powers that be, if you will, uh, or as I call them, parasite class. I think they find them to be some of the most threatening. Uh, people, because typically they're those who will step outside of the crafted narratives uh, that are being promulgated through the media. And, uh, you know, the analogy I use is they're people who will color outside the lines and do so in a way that's compelling, enticing, oftentimes even beautiful. And uh, I think that's uh, it's a lure. Uh, it's a lure for people because uh, we are so moved by art. And, you know, it has the power to effectuate change on a cellular level as part of why they co-opt it, right? Because it's so effective. And so it was really important to me. So I just wanted to share that. We are gearing up to do another one. And if that's something you want to be a part of or you want to support, there are ways you can uh, reach out through that website to be a sponsor, to, um, you know, be a, to donate or just to reach out. And if you want to collaborate, if you think there are any great artists who you think should be involved, uh, we welcome all of that. So all that to say, I thought that today I would talk about a film. I had been invited with some friends to go see a movie. And I think, you know, the way my friend had presented it to us is that it was going to be kind of this like quirky kind of horror film, uh, kind of cutesy. And uh, that was not quite what it was. <laughs> it was very, very dark. And it was, it's called Poor Thing. So now I see that it's gotten 11 Oscar nominations. And I will just share from my perspective, personally, I, I felt like this is something that if I had seen 10 years ago uh, as a European film with English subtitles, you know, it wouldn't have necessarily been so shocking. Uh, but to see it as a mainstream American production, Hollywood production, big budget film with, you know, A-list actors uh, in the, that was, it was rated R, by the way, it wasn't even NC-17, was honestly shocking to me. 
it actually says so much to me about where we are as a culture, as American pop culture, American art, American film. And uh, it was incredibly dark. And I, I say I'm surprised that it wasn't NC-17 at the very least. It was very pornographic. It was, you know, very explicit, very graphic, uh, you know, in some cases kind of gratuitous. But really, you know, shocking to see that in a mainstream, just R-rated film. And uh, especially, you know, in America, like that's just, it's very, it's kind of like a film noir type thing to do. And uh, as I said, I wouldn't have been so surprised even 10 years ago to see it in a foreign film with American subtitles, English subtitles, sorry. Uh, but I also thought this was interesting that, so it was nominated for 11 <laughs> Oscars, so definitely was uh, by the industry deemed very worthy. And I will say the acting was phenomenal. So as an actor and a film producer that I tend to have a very critical eye for these sort of things and I have a hard time just enjoying movies, but I, I cannot take that away. The cinematography was phenomenal. Uh, you know, just the, the directing from an artistic technical perspective was really, really top notch. And the acting really was phenomenal. Uh, so you can see just the, they, they were very um, artsy with not just the costume, you know, it's obviously reminiscent of kind of Victorian era, but they, they shift through. It's kind of like toggles between Victorian to futurist, futurist kind of uh, hybrid. And, uh, but it was very visually, you know, really uh, aesthetically uh, quite, you know, captivating. So um, and uh, we'll, I'll show you some clips in a bit and you'll, you'll learn a little bit about that. So I definitely uh, give them kudos for that. But it was really dark. And my feeling about how dark it was is that I, I keep saying if it had been kind of like just a, you know, kitschy horror film, I think I'd find it less disturbing. It was actually very deep. It was not at all superficial. There were a lot of themes, a lot of uh, social commentary, cultural commentary running through this. It's, of course, you know, very reminiscent of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I, I would kind of caption it as like a modern day feminist version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It happens to be based on a book. It was a book uh, by Al Alistair. I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, but his last name is Gray. A book that he wrote called Poor Things back in 1992. And it was definitely influenced by Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So uh, it's not strange that those themes are, uh, you know, that there's a correlation there and that the themes are reminiscent of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. But the other thing that struck me about the Oscars is that I saw in my feed one of the other quote unquote propaganda films, because I did feel like it was propaganda, uh, that we saw was Barbie. And I thought it was funny when I was looking up one of the articles, they were talking about how like this era, this Oscars was going to be coined the the Barbenheimer. <laughs> um, yeah, that this it was going to be known for the cultural phenomenon that was Barbenheimer or the dual release of Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. And I really did feel like both of them were also propaganda movies, but I kept seeing all through my social media feeds, a bunch of them, you know, didn't seem to matter which platform I was on. Uh, all, a lot of uh, people complaining how Barbie was snubbed. Now Barbie, I believe got eight nominations for Oscar. So the movie was not snubbed in entirety. But it seems like uh, 
Robbie Margot was. She did not get a nomination. I did listen to a clip of, of what she said, and you know, she was very gracious about it, saying that you know the purpose was to impact culture and have that influence and have the voices be heard, and that she absolutely feels that this movie did that, and so she feels blessed. And I think that was a very gracious response. I I will. You know, say from my perspective, I do think that Barbie had a huge impact on culture in probably a very different way than Poor Things. I think the audience, the target audience is obviously a little bit different, although this was R. <laughs> although Barbie was, I think it was rated G or maybe PG-13. I'd, I'd have to look that up. But it's definitely targeting a younger audience. And it was very, Barbie was, well, I also think Barbie actually had deeper themes running through it. And I did a uh, show on it with uh, my friend uh, Jamie Hanshaw. And uh, I think Tiffany Boyd was in that one. It was for my The Right Voices show. And uh, we did do a show kind of going through the themes of Barbie. So no way do I think that that was uh, superficial, but certainly the tones were much more, uh, you know, on the surface, it, it's very bright colors and very, um, you know, it's a lot of pink, like this color pink and, uh, you know, very kind of uh, upbeat looking uh, from the from the onset. That's kind of the appearance. It gives a very uh, candy bubblegum is the word that comes to mind. I'm not saying that there weren't deeper themes. There definitely were uh, very similar themes, actually, uh, running through Barbie. But I, but it is definitely a different target audience. And so poor thing, before I talk anymore, why don't I show you the clip of the trailer so you can get a sense of what this movie is about or you listen to it. This is Bella. Bye, bye. Bella, this is Mr. McCandles. Hello, Bella. No. She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she is progressing at an accelerated pace. Tell me, where did she come from? I shall. For it is a happy tale. I am Bella Baxter, and there is a world to enjoy, circumnavigate. It is the goal of all to progress, grow. A woman plotting her course to freedom. How delightful. Okay, so uh, for the, the, that was kind of the trailer. It gives you a little taste of what it's all about. And there's so many themes in this movie. So I'm going to do my best to kind of go through some of the things that jump out at me. Uh, but just to, as an overview, I should probably say this is going to be a spoiler alert for people. Uh, I'm not really great at like giving all the details away of a movie anyway. But if this is something you're planning to see and you're one of those people who doesn't like to know too much before you go watch, then I would say, you know, maybe this uh, this broadcast might not be for you. Uh, maybe watch it after or listen to it after. Uh, but uh, <laughs> anyhow, 
I just wanted to put that disclaimer out there. I'm so the opposite. I, even as a little kid, I was the kind of person who would read the last page of a book and all my teachers would say, you can't do that because then you won't read the book. And I was like, oh no, no, I still want, because I'd read the last page. I'm like, okay, now I want to know how I got there. <laughs> so that's just my personality, but I understand not everybody's like that. A lot of people like to be surprised and, uh, you know, I kind of like to connect dots. So I want all the data points so I can see the big peak picture before I zoom in. That's just how my brain works. But I wanted to be fair and tell you that. So there's a lot of different themes, I think. Uh, so just to give you a little overview of what it, it's very similar to Frankenstein in the, that there's this like mad scientist who, you know, is uh, kind of trying to play God. Uh, he's a uh, creates life. And that, you know, that's a, a theme in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So this is a, it's a spinoff of that, but there's a lot of uh, um, parallels and overtones. And interestingly enough, so this is definitely, as I said, a like a modern feminist take on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Interestingly enough, those of you who know the history of uh, Mary Shelley and uh, her and her work, uh, you'll remember that Mary uh, uh, won't. Wollstonecraft? I, I, why do I always forget how to say her name? Um, but her mother was like a very uh, prominent, um, prominent known feminist. And she uh, wrote like works on, uh, you know, like feminists, uh, kind of like the, I'll have to look up the book. But, you know, she, she wrote a lot of uh, works that were kind of pioneering and uh, leading a lot of the feminist movement. Uh, so yes, where was it? So this is also interesting. I didn't remember this. Mary Shelley wrote the novel in 1818 and it was called Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. And I do think that's just kind of interesting that, you know, that was, uh, you know, those of you will remember Promethean, Promethean demigod uh, who stole the, the fire, um, and uh, that's and brought it to earth. And I think that's kind of interesting that that's a, that's a very Gnostic type of a, a theme, just even in that. And uh, the 1800s was also just a very interesting time period. So just having that backdrop of all of that. And then to see this poor things was based on, you know, so I don't know if I can find what the books that her mother wrote, but her mother did write several books and she was very much a feminist. So, and I think that influenced, uh, you know, M Mary as well. Mary was a, uh, her mother had died at a very young age, and then uh, her father mostly raised her, and her father, uh, who was a philosopher, and interestingly enough, his name was William Godwin. And I think that's interesting because in the movie, the uh, scientist who's very much the father figure who creates Bella, who is the played by Emma Stone, his name is Godwin, <laughs> and Godwin, sorry, uh, and uh, he was uh, she calls him god and uh, i i do think that that is a very uh you know intentional uh, coinage of the name so interestingly enough a lot of analyses that i read about this like when people really didn't comment on him too much and i i thought that was very interesting because there there was a lot that struck struck me about him you know he was obviously a very uh, traumatized 
uh, in many ways. I don't mean the stump pejorative, but, you know, I, I would say damaged type of a, a figure. Uh, his father was a, also a mad scientist who conducted lots of experiments on him. And throughout the film, you know, you can tell that he's constantly trying to convince himself that his father really loved him. But there's this theme that his father just loved science so much. And he had that, and he really like respected and revered his father's, uh, you know, contributions to science, dedication to science. So there is this uh, scientismic, I don't know what you call it, scientism, scientismic, <laughs> uh, but not science as in the scientific method. You know, the scientific method is uh, traditionally, uh, historically, was this notion that you would put forth a hypothesis and then you would do some sort of a controlled experiment to test that hypothesis. And as Richard Feynman said, there are so many, uh, you know, questions uh, that cannot be answered, but there are no answers that cannot be questioned. And that was really the framework of what science, what it meant to uh, conduct science and the field of science. But there seems to be a whole nother thread of uh, scientism where there's kind of this reverence and worship of uh, science. I, I did a podcast pretty recently where I, I drilled this, you know, with the guy and I really tried not to be, I, I didn't want to be uh, you know, too combative or disrespectful, but it was very important to me. And typically, you know, I certainly do not share all the beliefs of my guests. Like, you know, that would make for things to be really boring anyway, wouldn't it? Uh, so, you know, I like to respect that they bring their own uh, viewpoints, perspectives, and uh, assertions to the table. And, uh, you know, I welcome that. However, this was just, a, especially since it was a philosophical discussion, I thought it was really important to make the distinction because he kept saying the science. And I made the joke like, oh, so Fauci, you know, like he said he's the science. But really what I was trying to drive home is that science doesn't do anything. Science doesn't say anything. Science is a method. And I thought this was one of the themes that was very interesting about Godwink short called God, who kept saying, you know, talking about his father and and the reverence he had for his devotion to science. And, uh, you know, that's the, it seemed like he could forgive him for all the experiments that he did on him. And you can see he's deformed. He's got scars all over his face. Uh, you know, I would argue probably also emotionally uh, very much scarred by all of these horrific, uh, you know, to me would seem quite horrific, inhumane kinds of experiments that were done. And then, of course, he follows in his father's footsteps and he goes into this type of, uh, you know, mad scientist uh, creation type of endeavor. And uh, it is very much type a uh, Gnostic type of a theme, man becoming God, man is replacing God as the creator. And this is not to, you know, uh, tell anybody what worldview they should uh, assume or, you know, subscribe to. Uh, I'm just sharing some of the themes and how they run con contrast to each other. But I think that the name Godwin was definitely intentional. And I think, it, you know, on it kind of a double entendre. I think it was also a nod uh, to Mary Shelley's father, who was a philosopher. And uh, so that was interesting. So it's the story of this scientist who was played by William Defoe, which is also interesting. Her father was William Godwin, and the character it was William Defoe who plays Godwin, and uh, he hit this woman who uh, commits suicide. She jumps off of a cliff, and uh, that he finds her, and she's pregnant, and he takes the unborn child, and he puts the brain into 
the mother's brain and essentially resurrects the this woman. Uh, so she is now his creation and she's kind of like child woman, girl woman, but she's, you know, developing, but she's in a uh, adult physical form. But of course, her development is very much that of a child. And so the film starts out in this black and white. And I think that was very symbolic as well. Uh, you know, there's a this kind of uh, suggestion that she's uh, kept sheltered, that she she doesn't have her eyes fully open yet. And then, of course, as she gets older, she's so the, there's a lot of different stages of development. You see some of her physical, physiological development. You know, she's very awkward. I thought Emma Stone made some great choices, uh, you know, as an actor. And uh, in terms of the physicality, uh, she walks very much like solar plexus forward. Uh, it's very awkward and stilted. And I think it was a, a great choice, though. If you think about if you watch children running, they always run like kind of like center forward. And... Uh, you know, ironically, that's actually, it's much faster. It's a much uh, more efficient way to run, but we kind of lose that as we get older, it's much more structured. And, uh, you know, obviously children tend to flail a bit, but I, I thought it was just, it was a really interesting uh, character choice and physiological choice. And I thought it worked really well. So you see that, you know, of course she's stumbling a bit before she can walk. And uh, then she develops and she you know her brain starts to develop and then she of course you know physically starts to mature and she becomes very explorative and uh, so there was also very much of you know again this feminist theme and it was a lot of sexual liberation so she's kind of this uh, character that has you know no filter and no shame because she has no filter. So there's no preconceived notions or socialized uh, types of uh, nor norm normalcy uh, or sense of uh, conditioning as to what is appropriate or not appropriate is all just raw impulse. And so she just acts on it with no shame. And there is kind of this sense of uh, how you know, that it's implied that this is some sort of a, a liberating way to live. And, uh, and so at that point, when she starts to go out and explore, she, of course, leaves and she she starts traveling all through Europe. And uh, I, I think this is also a, a take off of Mary Shelley's own uh, experience and in her life. And uh, I think that the the book, the author, Gray, uh, was drawing from that. I could be wrong, but that that's kind of, I, I do see that that was probably an in, inspiration for uh, those character choices. And uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe we'll play. There, there's somebody else who did an analysis. I, I was looking through a bunch, but th this goes through some more of the cin cinematic analyses. And I will just say, I think it's really interesting how <laughs> most of the reviews I saw, people loved it. They absolutely just loved the film, which I, I found a little surprising. Uh, I found it just so disturbing personally for me. This was, it was very, very dark. Uh, you know, as a commentary on where we are in society, I think it's fascinating. I think it's not to say that these themes haven't been running through for a very long time. They have, but to see them this overt and this on the nose, uh, you know, and this mainstream, I don't think we've really quite seen that previously. So, 
Uh, and we certainly haven't seen films that are mainstream that were this sexually explicit. I mean, that was very shocking to see in the theater with just no kind of, uh, you know, it was printed R, but it wasn't like, and this was really almost like a porno. <laughs> but uh, so that was really interesting. But people do seem to love it. And as I said, from an artistic perspective, I, I would agree that it was very well done. It was the, you know, the visuals. Uh, there was a lot of fisheye lens use, uh, which I think was a great, uh, a great technical choice by the director. I, I think, you know, it was to give a sense of wonder, curiosity, expansion. And uh, I think that was very effective. There was a lot of uh, like, you know, fake uh, and fake is probably not the right word, but, uh, you know, like CGI type of settings uh, where I don't think actually it was CGI. I think it was like replicated insular. Uh, there was a Vanity Fair. A uh, clip that I had watched with Mark Ruffalo, uh, Yorgos, the director, and Emma Stone, and they're talking about these visuals that were created to make things very, um, you know, the colors and to make the the to heighten things. And I think that those were great choices. Uh, the the costume design and as I said, the acting was really phenomenal. So I just found the film really disturbing. So I'm going to show you a clip, and uh, you'll hear. Uh, a bit of what they had to say about it. The inspiration. The original source material that this film is adapting is a novel published in 1992, also titled Poor Things by Alistair Gray. And the setup for this novel is very similar to the film. Put simply, it's a comedic, quirky, and satirical reimagining of the classic Frankenstein story. The film and the book have the exact same premise, which is an incredibly wild one. And here it is. A pregnant suicide victim is brought back to life by a mad scientist, replacing her brain with the premature brain of her unborn child. This reborn, baby-brained woman is the main character, Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone. And through Bella's journey, encountering a series of interesting and diverse characters, Poor Things becomes a thought-provoking social and political allegory, pointing out the absurdities in the expectations put on women, and the ironies in the desires of many men. Themes we'll of course dive deeply into in the later sections of this video. The only the only difference between the book and the film is the book is told through other characters' perspectives of Bella. The movie, on the other hand, is told entirely through Bella's perspective, using a fascinating series of narrative and visual techniques. For example, Bella throughout the film, for the most part, has a very childlike mind because she literally has the brain of a child. So the film is captured in the most grand, wondrous, and curious way, the same way a child would look around at every city, every building, every room that they enter. The world is always so animated and spectacular through the eyes of a young and innocent child. The film specifically uses the most vibrant of colors and widest possible lenses to make every scene, location, and backdrop as big and extravagant as it can possibly be. Even at times using fisheye-style lenses to capture a child's warped sense of focus through their eyes. The film's musical score is also very playful, wandering, and purposely directionless, just like a child roaming through a home or a front yard. The music specifically uses the most quirky and wavy strings and bendy woodwind sounds, like a dark and twisted version of a children's TV show theme song. Even the sound design was particularly meant to sound cartoony, clunky, and bouncy enough to remain consistent with the childish and curious style of the film. But there's another aspect of the movie's inspiration that I have to mention. The time period. The book itself was inspired by the Victorian era of novels, which were being published in the mid to late 19th century, commonly known to be written as social commentary satire. These novels in this time period very clearly inspired the set design, the wardrobe, and the style of social commentary for the film. The entire atmosphere and infrastructure of the film is heavily rooted in this time period. However, in multiple interviews, the team specified that they wanted to decorate this world with some details from various other time periods as well. 
to ensure that the film's criticisms on society were targeted at all points in time. Most importantly, the current era we live in today. This is why the film ventures into both classic and futuristic styles of drama and science fiction, with cityscapes of 1927's Metropolis, the satirical comedic style of 1972's Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, and most obviously, the props and set design of 1931's Frankenstein. The costumes also combine a diverse series of stylistic inspirations from many different time periods. The puffy sleeve top of the Victorian era, combined with the modern look of the high-waisted skirt cut above the knees. Also, at times, leaning into the space-age style of the 1960s and 1970s. And when it comes to the narrative elements of the film, let's discuss what the filmmaker is specifically trying to tell us about our lives in the next section of this video. The message. When it comes to the direct message of this film, the reality is there is no direct message. In an interview with the New York Film Festival, the director, Yorgos Lanthimos, specifically said, it's exploring. There's no direct message, I think. It's mostly creating conditions for characters and situations where you reveal conflicts in human behavior, society around humans, and humans themselves. So the film is never preaching or directly speaking to us. It's simply pointing out ironies and absurdities in this satirical parallel world to make us realize how absurd and ironic the actual real world is. And the specific way the film does this is it shows us how a woman would react to the world had she not been influenced by the common norms, customs, and expectations of society. Bella, specifically, has five stages of mental growth in this film, from a baby all the way to a woman. And these stages occur over a very short period of time. And because of this incredibly rapid mental and emotional growth, Bella is uniquely capable of completely rejecting the pressure and societal expectations commonly put on women. Since she matures at such a drastic pace, she is unable to be conditioned because mental conditioning requires time, repetition, and reinforcement. Bella is completely immune to these factors. For example, she is shamelessly open about her sexuality and non-judgmental of others, no matter what they look like or where they're from. And no matter how manipulative her romantic partner can try to be, she never thinks twice about putting her foot down and saying no. Because of Bella's unique brain chemistry, she can't be pressured or gaslighted or even persuaded to do anything she doesn't want to do. The only weakness she does have is her childlike innocence and naivety at first. But when she gets burned from a mistake, she learns from it incredibly quickly. And I'm not saying Bella's the perfect role model. I don't even think the film is trying to say that. We as people can be a lot more self-aware with a lot more forethought. But it's more what Bella represents in finding and protecting one's independence that we can all look up to. And I want to discuss in a little more detail what Bella represents in relation to her surrounding characters and what those characters signify in the real world we live in in the final section. The symbolism. It's no mistake in this film that Willem Dafoe's character's name is Godwin, and for short, Bella calls him God. Godwin is the mad scientist, surgeon, and professor who gave Bella life when she wasn't supposed to have it, either as the mother of the baby or the unborn baby itself. This specific name and dynamic between Bella and Godwin symbolizes how beliefs in philosophy, spirituality, and religion can at times be instilled into us before we really even get a chance to determine if we actually chose to believe in it. And I don't think the film is at all downplaying religion or any idea of God with this observation. And that seems to be proven by the fact that Bella and Godwin have a very loving and supportive relationship, like a lot of people do with their God. Bella fortunately encounters many friends and strangers with differing philosophies and beliefs, allowing her to develop her own morals and values on a very even and unbiased playing field. She's respectful of them enough to absorb their insights, but far away enough from them to question and challenge them without any second thought. 
Duncan Wedderburn and Max McCandles also represent two juxtaposing forms of male-to-female admiration. Duncan representing the shallow, superficial form, and Max representing the much more passionate and genuine form. In reality, a Duncan can often easily disguise himself as a Max, which is reflected in the film in how Bella doesn't truly detect the difference between them at first. But most importantly, what I haven't said about Bella and what may be the most important symbolically for the movie is she represents a second shot at life for not only the unborn baby, but also the mother. The mother, being suicidal, suffered a lot of misfortune in her life, and had the baby been born, she may have also had to suffer a similar experience in intergenerational trauma and oppression. Bella is the rewritten story of both women, discovering a new life of greater independence and liberation, a living, breathing symbol of the end of this crushing cycle of pressure. Oh, that was a, a pretty quick summary of a lot of themes. And I, I actually think they did a pretty good job with it. I would not necessarily agree that there's no direct message, uh, neither as just a viewer, um, but nor even just in the little clips that I've seen from Yorgos uh, Lanthimos. Uh, I'm not sure if that's how you say his name, Lanthimos. I know he's a very well-known director, but I'm not sure I pronounce his name. Um, so yeah, I... There, this is from a article I found in Time magazine. Now, Time obviously does have, you know, a message. <laughs> uh, I, I would call them New World, New World Order magazine uh, might be appropriate. But yeah, they so they say in Lanthimos's big screen adaptation, Bella embodies a feminist fever dream. Her intellectual and sexual awakening spurs an international voyage that helps her fearlessly forge a path to her own future. It's a humorous but clear-eyed commentary on the ways in which women are often limited and control both controlled both systemically and interpersonally. Attention that Lanthimos has been fascinated by since he read Poor Things 12 years ago. And then he himself told Time that power is the story of a woman. Noting that he and the screenwriter, Tony McNamara, felt that it was important in their in adaptation to make the film about Bella and from her perspective as opposed to the book which tells the story through other characters that is uh, important to note that the book by Alice Dare I think that's how you say it Gray uh, who wrote the book Poor Things back in 1992 uh, wrote it about Bella so all the characters would talk about Bella but it was not done from her perspective um, Bella goes through her life without shame discovering what she feels she needs intuitively, which is a which is heroic in a world where you're constantly told how to be or what is right. It is an act of bravery to make your own path. So, uh, contrary to what they uh, were saying that there is no message, I, I would argue that it it seems like there is a very clear message implying that uh, we, I, I think all people, but uh, particularly women, are somehow uh, trapped. Uh, by, you know, this patri patriarchal world and uh, we're limited uh, and that it's brave to, you know, carve your own path in this world. That seems to be very much, and that, of course, that is done through some sort of sexual liberation. Um, that seems to be very much what the message was. And then for this in Time magazine, they continue to say for Anne K. Miller, who is a professor of English and Women's Studies at UCLA and the author of Mary Shelley. So she wrote about the, you know, the biography of Mary Shelley, her life, 
her fiction, her monsters, both Bella's origin story and her essence follow in Shelley's complex feminist legacy. And quote, Frankenstein is essentially about power and how it leads us astray, Meller told Time. Victor Frankenstein is trying to take over the ability to create life from itself, life itself, from Mother Nature and from women. What results is a model of what happens when a woman is erased, which is what patriarchy in effect tries to do. So that is really the the, the message and the perspective uh, that it does seem to uh, be revealed through this film. I I would take a different take on it. I do think that there, uh, you know, that is true of Victor Frankenstein, uh, that he was absolutely trying to uh, create life. And I would not argue that in taking it away from, although in some regard, taking it away from women, but I would say taking it away from the creator and intending to instead be, uh, you know, a product, a, uh, you know, in an image of the creator, he is trying to uh, become creator. And this is a theme I feel like that we are seeing so much of today. This is kind of the uh, transhuman uh, theme that is very much being pushed and promulgated. I just actually released an episode today uh, with the author of Dark Eon, uh, Joe jo Allen. He's phenomenal. His book is phenomenal. And he's actually very nuanced in his perspectives on transhumanism. Uh, so, you know, he's certainly not in favor of transhumanism, but he doesn't lump them all in one category. He doesn't just say that, you know, uh, they're all the same. He really goes through the different types of thinkers, the different schools of thought, um, the different philosophies and, uh, you know, the, there's soft transhumanists, there's, uh, you know, the real like singularity, uh, type mindset like Ray Kurzweil. So there's a bunch, I won't ruin it. It's a three hour episode if you want to listen to that. Uh, but I, I do see both Frankenstein, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and then certainly this one having elements of those themes of this idea of man now taking over and becoming his own God and becoming creator. And uh, this, uh, you know, this one was a, a feminist take on that, that now uh, they're creating this, um, you know, this Bella character who is this merge of her own child and herself. So she becomes her, uh, you know, mother and child and not quite either one of them. And so I, I think that that would be more how I would interpret that. They refer to Dr. Godwin Baxter uh, being a Freudian nod for Shelley's writer and anarchist philosopher father, uh, William Godwin. I do think it was a, a nod to him as who served as the partial inspiration for Victor Frankenstein. So um, for McNamara, Tony McNamara, who is the writer who adapted the screenplay, uh, they say the central, central questions that surround him, surround Victor Frankenstein, also remained important as he thought about the character of Dr. Baxter. Why does he need to create someone? What is driving him to do it? And what does he get out of it? When you think about what his relationship to her was, as a daughter and an experiment, it informed a lot of his character and what his evolution with her relationship would be. Meanwhile, Bella's world tour in the film parallels the travels of both Shelley and her mother. Writer noted women's rights advocate Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote A Vindication of the Rights of Women. That was the book. Uh, and who, like Bella, also struck out on her own at a young age. 
And then they go on to say that Bella's sexual liberation can be read as a reference to Shelley and Wollstonecraft, unconventional relationships outside of marriage or their free love uh, or the free love values of Percy, who was uh, Mary Shelley's husband. Um, and then what else they say? Bella's intellectual awakening, which leads her to embrace of socialism. I thought that was very interesting as well. So she is on this boat and, uh, you know, she, I'll back up a little bit. There's kind of this uh, play of the two loves in her life. And one is this character, Duncan, uh, Mark Ruffalo, who did a phenomenal job. And he's very much, I think what is, uh, especially today, sold to women as being kind of an ideal. He's a very kind of uh, larger than life character, very affluent, very, very full of himself, um, very sure of himself and very slick. And then there the other character, Max, who she ends up marrying, who is, uh, you know, a much more substantial person. <laughs> uh, he is, uh, he starts off as the scientist who is an assistant to Godwin. And he, uh, he ends up falling in love with her. And uh, it's, uh, in many ways, it's, ac it's actually, you know, it's twisted and uh, bizarre, but it, that that part of it was actually kind of endearing. He seems like a very real person in uh, the midst of all of these characters. And I mean that in like, you know, almost caricatures, they were all these, uh, you know, larger than life or fantastical, you know, surreal types. And it, it, of all the characters, he seemed to be, the most akin to a real person, the most grounded type. And of course he falls for, uh, you know, this, uh, this developing person in all of her foibles. And uh, so in, in that was actually kind of a, a more human in the sense of real, not like humanist, but actual human kind of relationship. But he, but Duncan takes her on this, uh, you know, whirlwind trip when she decides that she's going to leave her fiance because she needs to explore and have all these relationships. And I think that is very much a feminist uh, uh, trope that's being sold to women. It's built over the years, but I think Second City did a really good job of popularizing this, right? Like, you know, that you want to have as much experience as possible before you settle down. And uh, I, I might be a little sinister in my perspective on this, but I think that it is part of a larger plan to, uh, strip women of their, you know, their most fertile years and to delay people in forming uh, marriages and families. This is if I were someone who wanted to depopulate and uh, break up family unions, I would certainly craft this narrative. Uh, so I'm not saying that's what's being done. But if I were to do that, it would be a great way to do so. And there's been a lot of film and television that has really sold women that that is the way. And this was very much a part of her narrative. So he takes her on this whirlwind uh, cruise trip. And on there, she meets someone who uh, another man who introduces her to philosophy. And so she's having kind of this intellectual awakening at the same time when she uh, now becomes, becomes kind of, and uh, Emma Stone was actually interviewed in Vanity Fair, and she says this, so she could kind of uh, bored with him and, you know, kind of frustrated. He finds him annoying. And so she ends up uh, 
doing a whole prank on him, leaving leaving him. But this uh, guy who introduces her to philosophy introduces her to all the suffering of the world. And of course, she has no concept of this. You know, she's gone from uh, being sheltered by her father, a very wealthy scientist, to uh, this man, Duncan, who is a very wealthy, I, I don't think they actually say what he does, but I think he's a businessman. And, uh, you know, he's a very, like, flashy, uh, you know, clearly seems to have a, a lot of uh, material things. And then this guy who introduced her to philosophy is uh, introducing her to some of the suffering in the world and, the, you know, the poverty of the world. So she becomes, uh, as this says in the, the Time Magazine article, how she embraces socialism. And uh, I think that's very interesting because that was very much what she did. Of course, it was uh, she plays a whole prank on him, gives away all of his money. Uh, maybe it wasn't really a prank. I think she was, it was in earnest. And, uh, but for him, it was obviously devastating. She gives up all of his money to give to the poor. And now he's, of course, very upset. And she leaves him to uh, go and pursue sex work. And uh, I, I thought that was another really interesting theme in the movie that it was uh, some of the most negative aspects of humanity. Uh, were represented in the movie, and uh, hedonism was a really uh, big theme. Uh, she, you know, as soon as she starts to develop, it's all about pleasure, uh, both, you know, sexual pleasure, there's, a, you know, the exploration uh, uh, through her travels, there's also uh, food, she can, she spits out things she doesn't like, and she wants more of all the things that are yummy and taste good. And so she leaves him a, a pauper struggling. Uh, and she goes off to uh, use her new learned skills from him and uh, pursues life as a sex worker. And this is so interestingly enough, I, you know, it, it, it takes a couple of different tones. In, in some points, they uh, make it uh, empowering. Uh, because now she's going to be able to fund her own life. She's not dependent on them. Uh, but there were some interesting themes, like the the Madame seemed very witch-like. Uh, I think it was, you know, it was kind of like Crowleyan type of uh, sex magic uh, types of uh, symbolism. And I could be wrong, but that's, that's kind of the impression that I got from it. Uh, there was certainly a lot of themes about just breaking down all boundaries. And we're seeing a lot of this currently. I did a, a, an episode not too long ago on the, the, this broadcast about uh, Lucius Trust. And that really was a brainchild of the Theosophical Movement, uh, Alice Bailey, who was a disciple of uh, Madame Blavatsky who popularized the, the Theosophical Movement. And that is all about, you know, the New Age Movement is all about tearing down boundaries. And, you know, the UN, it, Lucius Trust is kind of the uh, spiritual religious uh, uh, consultancy, if you will, to the UN. I did a whole episode on that, so you can go back and look at that uh, on my website. But if you missed uh, the broadcast on here, but I I think that the, that's part of their plan is the more we can destroy boundaries, the easier it is to usher in a worldwide uh, centralized governing body, as well as a worldwide centralized religion, which we know they have said is part of their plan. And uh, you have to tear down before you can build back better. Some people in uh, the United States may have heard that term before. Uh, that might ring familiar. So it's really all about tearing down those boundaries. And I saw that theme uh, throughout this movie that that was, uh, you know, 
the way to liberation was to tear down all of these boundaries and preconceived notions, and that that would be the key to liberation. Uh, some of the other things I thought were, it was very Nietzschean, this idea, uh, I mean, God dies at the end. Um, he, so, uh, and I, I think that was kind of play on, you know, God is dead. Uh, and very much this Nietzschean will to power, this idea that, you know, they, the, the uh, Ubermensch will rise and they can uh, do, do without will, which uh, would also be kind of a Crowleyan uh, element as well. But I think it's very much this do not be combined by uh, the constraints of society, societal pressures, societal norms. And uh, so some of those themes kind of ring throughout. And then there was another interesting parallel, which was between uh, Bella and Sophie, which was a minor character in Frankenstein. The Time Magazine actually uh, draws this parallel. And I thought that was interesting because I thought about that as well. I have a, I did a paper on Frankenstein my sophomore year of high school. So it's been, it's been a minute. <laughs> but I remembered that because she had stayed with this. Uh, the, the, uh, there was this, the family that the, the, the creature stayed with. And uh, Safi was a Christian woman fleeing patriarchal oppression in Turkey. And she was ex engaged to Felix, Felix de Lacy, whose family is unwittingly housing the creature, right? I remember that, that they were housing the creature, um, Frankenstein's creature. Oftentimes people think of Frankenstein as being the creation, but actually Frankenstein was the scientist, the, you know, the father figure. Uh, she, so the creature gets an education and she learns French and then history and politics of Europe. And so does he. Her journey as well as her desire to learn are reflected in Bella's own odyssey and her coming of age. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, the names, uh, right, what the Felix means, uh, happiness. And uh, what was the other one? Uh, Safi, I believe, means wisdom. So uh, and those are definitely uh, themes, you know, in this as well. Yeah, wisdom and happiness. So um, let me see if there's any other things that I want to leave you with um, before we close this out. Um, oh, I thought that also it was uh, really interesting, the relationship with um, the for the husband of the the woman who had committed suicide. And of course, the you know she then goes and seeks him out, and uh, he was uh, also a very uh, wealthy, uh, dark character. And uh, so she, having no filter and no shame and no um, you know preconceived notions or conditioning of how to, she's not socialized essentially, so she really just kind of confronts him. And is a very uh, contentious and combative, and also just there is a raw, genuine curiosity, and uh, that that was really interesting to see as well. Um, so she, you know, wants to know why uh, he, why things were so bad between them, and so he. That I'm going to read you just a little bit. We don't have a whole lot of time, but I thought that. Uh, I would, this might be interesting for you to hear. Um, I'm looking through how much of it. We don't have a whole lot of time. So 
Yeah, we have about four minutes left. So I'll just read the one quote. And this way I won't ruin the entire movie for you in case you have not seen it and you did want to see it. Uh, so Bella, Emma Stone's character, says to him that uh, I... She, uh, this is after he says, adorable idea. Unfortunately, my dar darling, life is dedicated to the taking of territory. You are mine. And that is the long and short of it. And she says she is not territory. And he says, the root of the problem is between your legs. I will have it off. And I will not distract or divert you anymore. See, a man spends his life wrangling his sexual compulsion. It's a curse. And yet, in some ways, his life's work, a woman's life's work, is children. I intend to rid you of that infernal package between your legs and plant a seed in you straight after. Let me explain what's happened. Victoria, your wife, threw herself from a bridge and died. Godwin Baxter, Baxter found her, brought her to her surgery, and then he removed the baby, removed the brain from the baby, transplanted it into my head, and reanimated me. So I won't... Uh, continue anymore. <laughs> I think that's revealed quite a bit, but that gives you, a, I think that kind of sums up really what this movie was all about. And uh, I found it incredibly, it, it, from an artistic perspective, it was quite brilliant. <laughs> and uh, from a commentary on our society and on the darkest themes of humanity, I found it incredibly just disturbing. So you can uh, see it for yourself, or if you already have and you want to uh, let me know your thoughts, I'd be curious. I was surprised how many people just loved it. I, I don't know what that says about where we are in society, um, but perhaps it's not for me to judge. This is just my analysis. So um, anyway, if you want to uh, see any more of my work or if you want to see the visuals along with this, please check out my website. That is CourtneyTurner.com. And again, I spell my name a little bit differently. It's like Courtney, C-O-U-R-T-E-N-A-Y-T-U-R-N-E-R.com. And on there, you can follow me on all the different social medias. I am very responsive. And as I had mentioned, you can, you know, directly support through Give Some Go, Venmo, or the P.O. Box, uh, which again, the P.O. Box is uh, 680093 Franklin, Tennessee, and 37063 is the zip code. So you can uh, support me there. And then you can uh, also, uh, you know, Oh, yes, I also have this crowd rank, which is great. This is an aggregate of news sources. So it's a kind of a social media version of news sources. And uh, it's a you can you share love on there as well. And uh, yeah, and then of course, Element and Relax the Saunas, which if it's cold where you are, you can use Code Quartz works on all of them. And the RNC, which I... I love them. They're just wonderful. G. Edward Griffin, I had the great honor of interviewing, and I aired it for my 300th episode, which is definitely a milestone for me. Uh, since I started in 2021, I can't believe we've done this many. And uh, he, John Richardson is starting this Operation World Without Cancer. And, of course, my friend Miriam, who I've had the show many times. We've done great shows together. Uh, and she is the founder of Honey Colony. She's known as the Bee Lady. And, uh, yeah, she did the movie about uh, beehives. And so, and, uh, yeah, so I think that uh, wraps it up. You can also just buy me a coffee. I'm a big fan of coffee. So, 
Anyway, you can send just notes, kind words, whatever, or feedback, things you didn't like. I'm I'm open to hearing all of it. So thanks so much. Thanks for listening. And for those watching, thanks for watching. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.